and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history, historical figures. In this case, these characters kind of feel like historical figures, even though they're fiction. (laughs) We have a very special guest here with us today, Joy McCullough. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're so happy to have you. Joy is an author and a playwright who studied theater at Northwestern University and fell in love with her husband atop a Guatemalan volcano. And we would love to talk to her more about that. But we are here to talk about her latest book, Enter the Body. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. So um, I started doing theater when I was a small child and I did it all through growing up in Southern California. And then I went to study theater in Chicago um, and was pursuing theater for a number of years, um, mostly as a playwright. Um, And then I, when I started to have kids, um, (laughs) it got a lot harder to do theater because you have to be gone at night so often. And if you've got babies that don't like to sleep, tricky, right? And so I started um, writing fiction. Uh, But it took me a long time to get published eventually. Um, But that was sort of my arc to publishing. And I live in the Seattle area. I've got two teenagers and a cat and a dog and a husband. And that's that's my world. (laughs) Perfect. So Before we talk about your book, we have to talk about the cocktail we made for your book. Yes. (laughs) So this is obviously called Enter the Body. So this is red wine, maple syrup, lemon juice, and bourbon, all mixed together and garnished with a strawberry just for fun. (laughs) Lovely. Well, I've got a tea to raise to you here. (laughs) That's so deep. I know. a deep flavor. I was thinking that. I was like, the theater, deep red curtains and... Blood. There's lots of blood in this. <laughs> well, it's Shakespeare. There's got to be. Yeah. Right. All right. So before we dive completely into your book, can you set the scene for us? This book takes place under the trap door of a stage and we meet Shakespeare's tragically dead teenage girls, most obviously Juliet, but then also Ophelia and Cordelia. What made you think of the setting for this book? Yeah, so it's a little bit strange, um, and like so many strange things that happen in the writing process, it, it was the kind of thing that that happened by gut, it happened by feel, and people always will then ask questions, so how did you come up with that? And I'm like, I don't know, I <laughs> did it, but I was thinking about about Shakespeare's dead women, and I was thinking about how they die um because a lot of a lot a lot of men die in shakespeare as well but they usually die in um glory with big wonderful speeches and uh you know it's it's amazing for the actors um the women juliet is a real exception in dying on stage the women mostly die off stage we don't even see them um and then multiple times they're brought back on stage dead as a prop for the male actor who's having their big moment. Um, And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about all these different kinds of characters um, who, who die on stage as women in Shakespeare's plays. And so I wanted to 
bring them together. And so I conceived of this trap room, which is the name of the space underneath a stage. Like if you're watching Wicked and you see Elphaba disappear through the stage, the space she goes down into is called the trap room. Um, and so I conceived of this this trap room under a sort of um, eternal stage that's everywhere for all of Shakespeare's women who die um, to to go into sort of in limbo until the next time they are required upon a stage somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I love the the vision of it because you kind of have all these women down here. Some are kind of looking in the corner, some are over here, some are over there. They're all kind of doing their own thing. And the world is going on outside, which I thought was so fascinating. It's like, you know, you write in the book, like people are on their phones, they're getting up from their seat, they're in intermission. And I just, I love the the whole setting. And you mentioned the women that die off stage. And in one of the portions, you talked about the mothers of these characters, women mm. lost to plague, violence, and childbirth, who never even got the chance to go on stage. And this is a common trope in a lot of writing. We see it in Disney films. Um, sure. Why are we always killing off the mothers? Do you have a <laughs> theory of that? You know, I think my kids actually make a joke that whenever I recommend a book to them, they say, are the parents dead? Yeah. Um, and I say, if I say the parents aren't dead, they say, oh, it must not be a very good book yeah. then. Because the joke is that if it's a good book, the parents must be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to be fair, in, in Disney movies, the fathers are often dead, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in children's stories, we just get rid of the parents yeah. um, because okay. that makes it easier <laughs> for kids to then go on some big adventure that parents aren't going to be there to tell them they shouldn't do. Um, but I think on a deeper level and in Shakespeare, you know, it's interesting, the the girls I focus on are the young ones. They are plausibly teenagers. We know Romeo and Juliet states that Juliet is 13. The others, we don't know how old they are, but they're usually played by like late teens, early 20s. Um, and and they, Juliet has a mother. She's the only one who does, although her character in the play is very flat and nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cordelia's mother is only invoked as an insult. Ophelia's mother's never mentioned at all, and neither is Lavinia's mother. Um, and I think, partly, I think it may just not have occurred to Shakespeare. You know, he's, especially when he started, you know, he's mid 20s when he started writing plays and Titus Andronicus, which is what Lavinia is from, is one of his earliest plays. You know, this young man in his mid 20s, surrounded by the men of the theater, because there's no men in that world, um, away from his family. He's gone to London and he's left his wife and his, you know, I think it may just not have even occurred to him because patriarchy, right? Like, who cares where the, how these characters were born? Here they are now. Um, and because the women, wielded so little power in that time that it didn't make them particularly compelling characters to put on the stage. He may have thought, now I don't think that's necessarily true, Mm -hmm. Uh, but when he has a compelling woman to put on the stage, often she is wielding power. You know, Lady Macbeth is wielding power in urging her husband, you know, to do things. And he, he brings Joan of Arc in and he does Cleopatra. So he was interested in women who had power. Mm -hmm. Um, but but finding roles for for women with power um, seemed a little trickier, especially to the younger Shakespeare, I think. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the writing style of the book? Because it kind of switches back and forth a little bit between like prose and almost like stage direction a little bit. So how is it written? Yeah, it is a little bit unusual and <laughs> difficult to describe. 
So um, when the girls are retelling their stories, it is written in verse. Um, and so this is not super common in adult fiction, but it's actually pretty common in middle grade and young adult fiction um, verse novels, which I personally think are amazing for reluctant readers because there's so much white space on the page. It's mm -hmm. not as intimidating as this, the big chunks in a conventional novel. Um, so that's one of the reasons, but there's a lot of reasons to, to go with verse. And to me, it made sense because I was playing off of Shakespeare, right? Which, you know, where language is so paramount. Mm -hmm. um, so those sections are in verse, but yes, the trap room scenes then are written like a script, um, including big sections of stage direction. Um, and, uh, you know, I I wrote the draft. It was like that from the beginning that it was, went back and forth, verse and script. And I just kept waiting for someone to tell me, this is a novel. You can't do that. <laughs> um but they didn't. <laughs> and so it ended up um, being allowed to stay that way. It, it just made sense to me. I wanted them to be able to talk to each other, which they could have done if I'd written it in a sort of more conventional novel format. But being that it's playing with Shakespeare, I really liked the idea of also giving it the conventions of a script. Mm hmm. Well, and then while you're reading it, it almost kind of feels like you are reading Shakespeare, but the things they're saying are just a little different than the things that you remember from the story. Right. Um, one of my other famous little pieces is you take time to reclaim this very famous space, which is Juliet's balcony. And <laughs> I just, I love this scene because you frame this balcony as a place where she can be alone. Like this is her sacred space. Like, you know, you say her parents don't go out there. Even the nurse doesn't go out there. It's like her very special space. And I love this. You said to be messy and free, which is, mm. I think, such a lovely aspect because we do forget that she is a 13-year-old girl. She's so right. <laughs> and I love this. And what I just want to know, what other kinds of dimensions did you want to add to these characters that maybe are lost in the original scripts? Well, Juliet is a really interesting one because I think a lot of the time we think, um, well, first of all, people hear 13 and they say, well, that was the time. That's how it was. They got married that early. They didn't. They got married at about 17 or 18 in the time that Romeo and Juliet is set. So Shakespeare did intend her to be unnaturally young for her father to be marrying her off. Um, so I think that that's, that's something interesting to remember. Um, but I also feel like um, these stories are so old, right? And and they're older than Shakespeare. They the, All of them have been told before. Midsummer Night's Dream was Shakespeare's only original plot. Um, he took everything else from other source materials. But we've, we, so many of these stories are so well known, Romeo and Juliet most especially, mm -hmm. that there are cultural stories told about them that we feel like we know them just on, just on the words Romeo and Juliet. There can often be this cultural backlash of insta-love, stupid teenagers. Why would they stab themselves just because, you know, um, when I feel like Juliet is one, uh, even in Shakespeare's version, she has a lot of agency. She is being really brave 
in choosing to go against her father trying to marry her off. Um, not only that, but to this opposing family, right? Um, so I feel like even on its face in Shakespeare's version, she's not a dumb teenager. That's a, we tend to belittle teenage girls so, so much. And we don't even look at the agency she had and the fact that, yes, as adults reading that, we go, oh, you couldn't fall in love with someone in one night, right? But when we were 13, I'm, you know, there were times I saw someone and thought I was immediately completely in love, right? And so I feel like t- giving a little bit more space mm-hmm. um, for that and allowing, like you said, with the balcony, allowing them space to be messy and free and real. Mm-hmm. Um, Because teenage girls are so undervalued and they are so incredibly smart. You know, I just had someone tell me they thought that this book was too difficult for teenage girls. And I was just like, I don't think you know any teenage girls then, you know, because the ones I know, and I have a 17-year-old daughter, and so I am around a lot of teenagers, they're incredibly smart. You know, and they're incredibly complex. And what's more, this book isn't only for teenage girls. You know, it's for boys, too. Just because it features female characters doesn't mean, you know, it can't be for boys who are also smart and complex and interesting. Um, So, yeah, that's that's the main thing that I always want to make room for characters to be messy and make bad choices, you know, like we all do. Um, and not have to portray some perfect ideal. Mm. It can also be really daunting, though, to write such famous characters <laughs> in a new way. Were Were there any um, moments that you really struggled with and or was there anything that was really easy for you? Um, I think reimagining the really... Um, really well-known ones, which are probably Juliet and then Ophelia from Hamlet. Most people have some sense of Ophelia as well. Um, I think that was probably the easiest because to me, they're so well-known that I, I it sort of gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted with them. I didn't need to retread any of the same ground that other retellings have done. I could just really take, I tried to take what was on the page and then jump off from that. So like, for example, Ophelia, um, one of the things she's most famous for is her flower speech, um, which is, you know, she's just found out her father has died and she brings flowers and she hands them out in the court. And then right after that, she goes out and she dies. Um, probably by suicide, although the text never actually says that. It just says she fell from a tree. Um, So that's another one of those stories that we've told over and over. Um, But yeah, so and so because she's famous for that flower speech, um, I made it so that her mother had been an herbalist and she'd grown up with flowers and she wants to be around the flowers and she hangs out in the tree talking to the tree. And so I was trying to start from something that was in the text, but then just to make it more complex and nuanced. Um, One of the trickier things, I think, was when I realized that Lavinia was going to be part of the story because originally I knew Juliet, Ophelia, Cordelia. 
Um, but Lavinia is from Titus Andronicus, and most people are probably not familiar with that play um, because it's a bad play and is very rarely produced, and nobody requires it in school. It was one of Shakespeare's very first plays. He was like 25, um, and it's not a good play, and it's the play in which the female character is the most a prop that's acted upon. Um, and so much so that Lavinia has her tongue and her hands cut off in the course of the play. Um, and so when she arrives in the chap room after her onstage death, she has no way to tell her story the way the other girls do. They're talking to each other, but Lavinia doesn't have a tongue or hands. Um, and so Facing the Titus Andronicus story and really looking at that because it, it involves sexual assault and she's killed by her father and like, it's just horrid. Um, and figuring out, looking at that story and figuring out how to handle it, because not only can she literally not tell her story, um, but I wanted to honor it as the kind of trauma that can't necessarily be told. Like not everyone can tell their story. Not everyone is in a safe place to, or not everyone has processed it enough to be able to, you know, I didn't want it to be a rah-rah, everybody tell your story now only kind of thing. There's a lot of that in the book, but, but I also wanted to recognize that that's, that doesn't work for everyone, you know? Yeah. Um, and so Lavinia showing up and realizing that I needed to grapple with Titus Andronicus was, was one of the more difficult things. Yeah. Have you ever played any of these characters on stage or do you hope that people who do so in the future, maybe read this and add a little bit of maybe your background to their characters when they play them? Oh, I think that would be so cool. So I have done some Shakespeare, um, but I have not played any of these roles. Um, <laughs> But I would love if people in the future playing these roles just and, you know, I think that actors do give characters their own complexity, their own backstory when it doesn't appear for them on the page. Um, so if, you know, my version helps inform some future actors version, that would be amazing. I should also say um, when I was doing research, there's a book called um, Playing Dead. Performing Shakespeare's Women by Paige March and Reynolds. Um, and it is by, it's a, it's a scholarly work, but it, it's by a Shakespearean actress who has performed many of these parts. And she talked about her, um, experience playing these parts, like playing Cordelia when the old man playing Lear carries her body out and how vulnerable that felt, things like that. So for people who are interested in what an actor experiences playing those parts, that book is really fantastic. So you said you've been involved in acting and in theater since you were very young and then also in writing plays. How did your relationship with theater change as you were writing this book specifically? Did you start to think about it differently or think about the characters in a new way? Um, no, I wouldn't say it did. So I, my playwriting life has continued sort of in parallel now. Um, and I have a, a theater company here in Seattle that I work with regularly and they did my new play in the fall. Um, and, but it's sort of a, sort of a separate 
piece, you know, I'm either working on plays or I'm working on books. I have had multiple people because this one is half written in script. Ask me, are you guys going to produce this as a play? Um, right now, there are no plans for it. I, for me, I really, it's written in script, but it's not written the way I would write a play. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. it's script that is meant to be read. Um, on a page rather than watched as a performance. If I were going to make a, a theater adaptation of it, I would, it would be a completely different, um, a different play. But, um, but no, I don't think it really has. Although if I ever am involved in a production of one of these plays mm -hmm. again, that probably I will, I will think about them a lot differently. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned the one book that you use kind of for research um, when doing the book, did you do any other type of research into you know, the time periods that these characters would have been living in, in it's kind of weird because there's a time period they were written in like Shakespeare's time. And then the time period that the play is set in. <laughs> and then also people like Cleopatra and Joan of Arc. Yeah. Like actual historical characters. So. It's a lot to take in. Well, and there's the time periods that they're performed in, yes, which right, is exactly. any time between, you know, then and then now. And so. Now. <laughs> so what was your research process like? Yeah, so I wasn't really doing research on like time period stuff, although I have written a couple of novels already set in the 15 and 1600s in Europe. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had a baseline for that. Um, so more my research was um, watching versions of these plays. Um, one just tiny silver lining in the pandemic was that a lot of theater companies made available really excellent video recordings of their previous productions. Um, and Shakespeare's Globe actually was one of them that made available a ton of performances. Um, and my 17-year-old actually, whose name is Cordelia, um, <laughs> loves Shakespeare as well. And so it was really fun to watch a bunch of different um, productions of these plays, to just watch different takes on them, different actors playing these parts. Um, and, and sort of think about that, think about what that was feeling like for that, the experience of that performance for that actor. Um, so yeah, that, it was sort of the one research book and then just a lot of watching. I reread the plays, although I will say Shakespeare is not meant to be read. Um, and so many people hate Shakespeare and it's because they had to read, mm -hmm. you know, Hamlet in 10th grade or whatever. And it's not Shakespeare. I think would be horrified. Yeah. Like that is that it's meant to. You're, you're meant to watch performance, and ideally, good performers who yeah. know what to do with the work. You know, um, but yeah. So the main thing was watching as much Shakespeare as I could during the pandemic, which mostly meant recorded productions, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah, so I think this book just came out like on the yes. 14th. Yes. They got like just recently. So. Um, can you tell everybody who's listening where they can get a copy of this book? Where can they find you and the other stuff that you work on? If anybody's up in Seattle, where can they come see your plays? Yes, absolutely. So, um, any retail site basically that you, where you like to get books, um, including things like Target and stuff will have them. Although I always encourage encourage your local independent bookstore. Um, if you have one in your community, if you don't have one, you're welcome to order from Third Place Books. 
which is mine, and they usually have signed copies of my books. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me online. My website is joymccullough.com, um, and all of my books are listed there. Whenever I have a new play coming, it's listed there. Um, my plays are usually produced in the Seattle area um, at Matcha Theater Works, which does fierce feminist theater. Um, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter as JMC writes. Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on our show. This was such a blast. What an interesting book. I yeah, opened it up. and I was like, I've never seen anything like this. (laughs) (laughs) So I really hope that all of our listeners get to experience it and, um, everything else that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you. (laughs) 